Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume uh, in September of 2021, and we hope our guests today will be able to join us at that event. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Dina Shakir to Salt Talks. Dina is a partner at Lux Capital, a multi-stage venture capital firm with around $2.5 billion uh, in assets under management where she invests in transformative technologies, improving lives and livelihoods. She's particularly interested in contrarian and underdog founders building ambitious companies in digital health and sits on the boards of companies, including H1, All Stripes, and Shiru. She's the daughter of Iraqi immigrants, and Dina's had a very nonlinear journey into venture capital, always orienting around tech and entrepreneurship with an impact focus. Prior to joining Lux, she was a partner at Google Ventures and led partnerships for Moonshot Products at Google and directed at social impact investments at Google.org. She was a presidential management fellow in the Obama administration, where she worked in Secretary Clinton's office and the USAID on programs supporting global entrepreneurship. A passionate advocate for diversity, inclusion, and equity, Dina is also on the boards of several nonprofits. She's a Forbes contributor a Kaufman Fellow, and is a Council on Foreign Relations term member. She lives with her husband and two young children in the San Francisco Bay Area, but I think she's escaped. Uh, I have three kids as well, so I know how it goes. She's escaped the zoo that is the, the household during COVID and is in the Lux offices today. Hosting today's talk is AJ Scaramucci, who's going to be increasingly joining us as a host here on Salt Talks. He's done a few previous uh, interviews. I know we did one with Joe Lonsdale. Uh, a few weeks ago, AJ, but AJ is the founder and managing partner of the SALT Fund, which is a new fund that we've launched leveraging uh, the community and ecosystem that we've built here at SALT that's incubating and investing, especially in early stage life sciences oriented companies. So I know a lot of overlap uh, with what we're doing at the SALT Fund and what Dina does over there at Lux. But uh, with no further ado, I'll turn it over to you, AJ, for the interview. Thank you, John. Dina, so good to be with you. You know, I mean, there's tons of, of rich things in, in that background. Before we dive into your role at Lux and, and perhaps some of the investments you've made, I'd love to just contextualize that a bit. How, how did you get here? Well, how, how did you get to, to, to Lux Capital? Let's start there. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you, uh, John and AJ, for having me. That's probably the question I get asked the most, um, just because it, if you look at my LinkedIn background or my resume, um, it certainly is uh, non-linear and non-traditional, um, although uh, I, I would contend that uh, there really is no traditional path into, into this field. You know, for me, grew up in the Bay Area. My, um, uh, as you mentioned, John, my parents immigrated from Iraq. Um, my father came to the Bay Area to complete his residency at Stanford in psychiatry and just fell in love with the Bay in the 70s. And so, um, you know, it, I had a very privileged childhood compared to most of my relatives. And that very, you know, very much informed my identity, especially, you know, being in high school when 9-11 happened and feeling perhaps for the, the first time in my life that my hybrid identity as an Iraqi, as a Muslim, and, and as an American, all of a sudden to out, 
it to anyone on the outside seemed at odds. And so that really informed you know, it, it, it informed my career path, my my educational journey, and ultimately my my goals in life. I wanted to help contribute to a world where that would not happen again. I wanted to sort of do what I had have always done, what any you know third culture kid, any child of immigrants has done, which is to build those bridges and to be able to seamlessly transition between worlds, and to do that in service of uh, of impact. And so. Uh, went off to uh, the East Coast for college, went to Harvard, um, and uh, and really thought I was going to do a PhD in anthropology. You know, I thought academia was going to be the, the path for me to do that. But we studied the Middle East, of course, at Harvard. Studying the Middle East meant you know reading ancient Akkadian texts and and studying Sumerian Sumerian philology, which was very interesting, but not necessarily what I what I had in mind. And so I spent summers abroad and. Um, and, uh, and then went off to grad school at Georgetown. And so ended up in DC. I graduated in 2008. Uh, in fact, I, I delivered the commencement address that year. And the, the speaker right after me was the former chairman, Ben Bernanke. And uh, if you go back and, and look at the footage from that speech, I actually turn around to thank him and he had disappeared. So there was clearly something going on in that summer of 2008. Um, and of course, several, uh, several months later, we, we, we you know, we came to see what was happening with the financial crisis. But I bring that up because at the time, you know, the class before mine, the class of 2007, 47% of Harvard undergrads went into Wall Street or consulting. It was just the thing you did. There wasn't really a clear path um, between these sort of this dichotomy of doing well or doing good. So you could go, you know, maybe you could be a doctor or you could be, um, you know, a human rights lawyer, or you could be an academic, or you could do what all the kids did and, you know, make a ton of money. And, um, and, and that's really unfortunate because it took me, you know, over a decade to realize that there is not only a gray area, if you will, but perhaps a more impactful area towards sustainable economic development uh, in between. Uh, so I, I was pursuing the academic path and ended up in DC, as I mentioned, and that was a very interesting time um, for the country because I was there when Obama, who you may see in the in the photo here behind me, was uh, elected, was inaugurated, and then ultimately took office. Um, and while I was in grad school, just as 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 was the case while I was an undergrad, I. I was working all the time. I paid for both college and grad school by myself, and I was lucky enough to get an, a number of scholarships, but also was usually working one to three jobs at a time. And happened to um, one of those jobs happened to be as a journalist, very briefly. Um, and I was on air. <laughs> I did a bilingual Arabic-English news show. Um, not sure if you can tell based on my presence. Just kidding. Actually, it was, it was very difficult because the, let, let's just say I thought my Arabic was good. But when you, ha when you have to do a news show on air in Arabic, that's a whole nother story. So happy to be on air anytime, but please don't ask me to do it in Arabic in the future. Um, but uh, it ended up interning with the BBC and covering the White House when Obama gave his canonical speech, which became known as the Cairo speech in 2009. Um, I, I know we talked about this before, AJ, so I'm, I know you remember it, but that speech was a watershed moment for relations between the U.S. and the Middle East. And for me, as someone who had grown up in the Bay Area, who was passionate about uh, economic development and who specifically knew the power of technology in particular um, to, to not only build bridges and, and product for impact, but also to enable livelihoods, I was really motivated by that speech and I dropped my nascent career in journalism and made it my job to make that my job and find out who was going to be running um, the, the policies coming out of that speech. So 
uh, was lucky enough to get a presidential management fellowship, end up at, uh, initially it was at USAID and then at the State Department, um, and spent several years working on a number of initiatives around but the post Cairo portfolio, specifically enabling um, and and funding uh, programs for entrepreneurship in the region, and so how how did how did that lead to to venture um, is a is a good question, and and a lot of it also has to do with another watershed moment for the region, which was the Arab Spring, and being in the U.S. government as an Arab American. Um, when that was happening was was really interesting. And I was witnessing changes on the ground in the region that I didn't think I would see in my lifetime. Now, back then we were all a lot more hopeful. Um, uh, you know, uh, certainly looking in retrospect, things perhaps didn't end up the way that many had hoped. But what I was seeing was that technology was enabling change in a way that was truly revolutionary. And that to me was incredibly exciting. So it was a combination of seeing that, you know, the beginning of, of what we were, what we, get, we now call the fourth industrial revolution. And I was coming out to the Bay a lot for work. My job working in Secretary Clinton's office for, uh, on public-private partnerships was to, you know, and, and facilitate those types of relationships with startups, VCs, and and um, and also large tech companies. So a combination of like feeling this, the, the energy here in the Bay, recognizing that this, this place I had grown up in, which when I left, I honestly never thought I would come back. It didn't seem like there was an opportunity for somebody who wasn't, you know, just a, maybe a chip engineer or, or, or perhaps a software engineer, but Silicon Valley and, and the technology in general was not just a, a separate sector anymore, but a way of doing everything better, more effectively, efficiently, and in, in some cases more democratically. So uh, that's when I decided I wanted to to, to learn how to build product. And that's a, not an easy transition. And it was early. You know, there's definitely a diaspora now of folks from D.C. In, uh, in the Bay. But back then, this is 2011, 2012, it wasn't a clear case to make uh, as to how someone with my background, who literally studied the most non-technical degree you could get at Harvard, social studies and Near Eastern languages and civilizations, would be qualified for a job uh, on the product side. So very difficult, um, but ultimately ended up um, being fortunate enough to get a really cool opportunity. Um, and so spent five years working on early stage product partnerships at Google, including some uh, social impact initiatives, including you know, Google's elections products and so on, but ultimately uh, lands in, into healthcare. And that's what led me to venture. And it was leading Google's first HIPAA compliant product effort, meeting incredible entrepreneurs who were doing things, frankly, better than my team of hundreds of engineers at Google, and recognizing that big tech probably was not going to be the source of innovation in these really intractable fields. Uh, and, and I just felt that same energy I felt when I wanted to, to work in the administration and that same energy I felt when I wanted to move into Google. And now I knew that you know it was the, it was working with startups that um, would be my kind of my life's work. And so uh, met some amazing entrepreneurs, invested in some of them myself as an angel, very small checks, sourced some of them to my friends in venture, um, and then uh, made my way over to GV where I was for a couple of years before joining Lux. So that's, that's a not so yeah. short story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, having that sort of systems level approach, having those varied experiences in politics and journalism, even in academia, and then eventually in technology has given you, I think, a very unique uh, perspective on venture. I think it's a perfect segue. I mean, at, at, at Lux, can you give us a sense, give us a flavor of your own investment philosophy in the context of the broader firm 
and uh, perhaps even call out a, a few investments that you've made that you feel particularly compelled. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Um, so at a high level, Lux has been around about 21 years. Started off in the early days as a small seed fund out of New York that um, my partners, Josh and Peter, started with this hypothesis that there was a really unique opportunity to invest in the earliest days of company creation and in funding contrarian rebel entrepreneurs who were taking on some of the most challenging problems, who were literally turning science fiction into fact. And if you think back, you know, at that time, there wasn't such a clear venture return profile for that type of a business. Now we call it frontier tech, deep tech, hard tech, and every venture firm is trying to do it. But back then, that was, you know, pretty much a category creating um, and bold mission. Um, and so, you know, I have so much respect for, for Josh and Peter for doing that and doing so in their early 20s, no less. Um, and, so, and that's how it started. And they, you know, in the early days did a lot of nanotech and nuclear and clean tech. And the fund has evolved quite a bit since then. So we are no longer a small seed fund. We now have 2.5 billion uh, AUM and we are a multi-stage fund, but we are very much still true to that core of, uh, of a deep conviction in science and technology in improving and advancing uh, humanity and very much still love to be there at the earliest days of company creation. So we're quite flexible. We can incubate, we can be first capital in. We are investing out of our sixth venture fund, which is a $500 million fund. And that's really for you know everything from pre-seed to series B-ish. And then we also have our, our second opportunity fund where we not only double down on our existing investments, but also can make growth stage investments in companies like Benchling, which we just announced another round in yesterday, like Everly Health, formerly Everly Well, um, Applied Intuition, uh, and others. And so, um, you know, in terms of me and my thesis, you know, one of, I had a couple of different opportunities that I was exploring um, when I was thinking about leaving GV and had been at, at Google and Alphabet broadly for almost eight years. And um, it, Lux was one of the easiest decisions I've had to make in my career. I was very, very lucky. It was clear to me that everything about their investment philosophy was just very aligned with my values and also my, my background. Lux loves to invest in the intersections and intersectionality is not only my actual identity in terms of who I am, but also very much so my, my career path. And so whether it's the intersection of health and technology, of hardware and software, of computational biology and food like Shiru um, and, and, and so many more, that, that is core to, to what they do and is very much also kind of core to my thesis. So since I joined, I've made a number of investments. You've uh, mentioned a few of them. Um, I probably spend the majority of my time, maybe 60% or, or more these days, looking at human health and population health. And uh, one of the, our most more recent investments is in a company called SteadyMD, which uh, Lux led the Series B uh, for, and I joined the board, of, board uh, of. And that company is really revolutionizing the expansion of digital health again, from this notion of being a separate field to being sort of the rails that's powering virtual care across industries. Um, so, so that's a company I'm super excited about as somebody who you know, worked on digital health product at Google in the very early days and, and recognized you know, what it takes to succeed there. And also, you know, frankly, what the last year has taught all of us um, about the importance of 
healthcare moving into the home, of the decentralization of clinical trials and clinical research, um, and of the ability of technology to enable access at large um, to improve human health. So that's that's one example. Um, another is Shiru, which was um, actually my first investment at Lux and a company that I am uh, proud to continue to serve on the board for. Um, and so Shiru is applying computational biology and machine learning to the development of novel plant-based ingredients. And so for me, this is a massive opportunity to, to you know, contribute to um, taking on climate change through you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also a massive opportunity for a tremendous generational company. Uh, as again, we've seen in the last year, although I made this investment you know, before the pandemic, there is not only a, an increasing consumer demand for plant-based ingredients, but there is a, a really large challenge on the food supply chain that is, that it, that is contributing to uh, the bottom line for a lot of these food companies. And so rather than creating the next impossible burger or Beyond Meat or a chicken alternative, what Shiru is doing is actually using machine learning to develop new ingredients that will be the building blocks of those companies, but also enable the large Fortune 500 food companies of the world to replace egg protein or gelatin or various other ingredients in their foods. And that, and that is something that is incredibly exciting to me. It's a model that's worked quite well in healthcare and pharma for a long time. Uh, and, and Jasmine um, with her company, Shiru, is the first to, to actually apply it to food. So very excited about that one as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just to jump in here, I mean, when you think about, I mean, today, I mean, we're, we're living in a, in a time where there is truly an abundance of capital, where even pension funds and sovereign wealth funds are coming down and doing direct investments, really for the for the first time. And you know, the question here is, how, how does how does Lux? How, how do you, when you approach entrepreneurs, what does it mean to be founder friendly? Uh, what does it mean to really add value uh, in in the context uh, of Lux and differentiate amongst uh, the many other many other funds? Like when you work with, say, Jasmine at Shiro, we'd love to understand. You know, how you how you win deals, but also how you empower and catalyze uh, the, these entrepreneurs to tremendous success. Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, it's funny because when I speak to you know family members of mine who are very much outside of the venture capital world, they find it baffling that the check writers are actually the ones who are doing most of the selling and the hustling and trying to win. It's certainly counterintuitive, but you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, the, it's the nature of the business. Capital is everywhere now, increasingly more so, whether it's a, a family office, uh, a corporate VC, or in, in these days, very um, aggressive individual angel investors, like getting access to capital is not the problem uh, for entrepreneurs. So, so there is very much a, um, a, a selling process that's important, but you know, for me, it's it's um, a lot of it is grounded in authenticity, and that is, believe it or not, uh, rare to find in this industry. Um, and and so, you know, having my voice out there, standing uh, standing up for what I believe in across the board from an investment thesis perspective, from a um, corporate governance perspective, from a diversity and inclusion perspective is, is something that's very important. Um, and, and one of the beautiful things about this job is that we have the ability to meet with the inventors of the future all day, every day. Um, and so in a way, it's been almost a return to academia for me and almost a little bit of an anthropological exercise that I've been taking in 
really forcing myself every now and then to take a step back and actually produce some content. So I've been doing some writing um, and, uh, and that is something that I really kind of just did for myself initially, but I've actually found that to be quite helpful in um, attracting co-investors and entrepreneurs who are able to see who I am and what I stand for. That's not necessarily a formula in venture. There are some of the most incredible VCs out there literally are not on Twitter, don't write anything. So, you know, that, that's just something that has been uh, helpful for me. Um, and and the, other, the other thing to note is that, you know, you might be, you might have a PhD in a very technical field, investing in a technical company, but you're not going to be sitting there writing the code or you know developing the recombinant proteins yourself. So it's important to have the fluency in in the, in the in product to be able to understand what it takes to build a team, and that's very much what I did in my in my prior world. But it's also important to uh, to, to to understand what it takes to scale a business, and and importantly to have a network. Everybody has their superpower that they bring to the table. And this is the advice I give to uh, younger folks that I mentor in terms of how, you know, different paths to get into venture. It's not about a formula, a template, a pathway. It's really about like, what is it that you bring that's different than somebody else? What is your superpower? And I am never going to be the smartest person in the room. I am not going to be the most technical uh, and I'm not going to be even the most experienced, but my superpower, which dates back to what I mentioned earlier, even in my, my childhood and my upbringing, is the ability to connect, the ability to bring people together. And the, the sort of diversity of my background in terms of the different jobs and lives that I've held and all throughout being focused on partnerships has really enabled me to build a not only wide, but very deep network that I bring to bear, whether it's through commercial relationships that result in you know, non-dilutive capital for these companies, whether it's through um, different co-investors we can bring to the table, or whether it's through relationships with future board members or hires. That's that's my thing. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. And, and when, when you make that make those investment decisions, hey, you know, we're, we're lux, we're gonna lead, lead that round, you're gonna join these boards. As you think about all of the various input parameters that go into that decision, whether it's team, market, et cetera, how do they wait for you? Like if you were to kind of allow us to, to delve into your mind's eye there, what is the weighting of those, those parameters? It's a great question. I mean, it's, it's almost a cliche, but truly it's about the people at the end of the day. Um, and the more, I, the more I've been doing this, the more I realize just how much truth there is to that. Um, you can have an incredible idea. Um, and that idea might be enough if you're working on a product within a large tech company because you, know, the, you can swap out team members. You know, it's, there's, there's more kind of fungibility there. But when you are putting everything at risk to start a company and going through the incredibly like, you know, psychologically draining process uh, that, that it inevitably turns into no matter how successful you are, it's about the people. And so that definitely team is very important. And, you know, a lot, some of that has to do certainly with, the, with their background, you know, their, their uh, understanding of the market, but also their ability to communicate. That's really important to me. And so we, we invest in uh, quite a few scientific solo founders. Um, and there are a number of companies, uh, probably the majority of companies in my portfolio uh, fit into that bucket. Um, but it's 
very special when we find someone, and Jasmine is a great example, and there are certainly others, including a few investments we'll be announcing in the, in the coming few weeks, where they not only have the technical and professional uh, expertise, but they are incredible storytellers. And that is important because it reduces financing risk down the line. It uh, empowers them to hire well. Obviously, there's you know a marketing and kind of growth element associated with that. But it is something that is important at all stages of a company. And I've, I've actually said this before, and, and I really believe it. For me, it's not my Harvard degree or any of the experiences I had in my professional career that I think is the most valuable that I've had. It is literally my speech and debate uh, experience in high school that I think has been the most valuable skill asset activity that I have ever done in my life. And, and so that's something that I do spend time as well with our with our with my founders and coaching them on. Uh, and that Lux in particular also is um, ha- has a wonderful program where we help um, founders with that as well. Definitely, definitely. And you know, you, you've been a, a, a huge voice and, and very active on the diversity front in Silicon Valley. And you know, th- this, is, this is a topic of continued uh, discussion on, on Salt Talks. We'd lo- love your take on you know, what, what ways, what techniques uh, would you suggest, or how do you think about uh, diversity in the context of venture capital, like at literal partners, uh, as well as entrepreneurs, and how uh, we can sort of reorient ourselves uh, to be more inclusive, more more broadly? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I I think back to the the first few years that I was at Google, where, where uh, you know, as you might recall, Google was the first major company to uh, release their numbers in terms of demographic data and uh, specifically on their on the technical side. And it was damning. It was bad. And so I actually helped put together kind of a uh, an internal SWAT team to try to figure out how can we address this both internally, but importantly, you know, given the convener that Google is in the ecosystem. And that was actually a very valuable exercise, you know, almost a decade later and how I think about the problem now from venture capital. What we realized through that is, you know, specific then to how can we increase the number of, uh, of, of women and people of color graduating with computer science degrees, that there are points of attrition throughout the, 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 the life cycle of an individual. Uh, in fact, you know, recent data actually has shown that some of these biases and, and preferences start as early as 18 months of age. Um, uh, you know, and maybe John as a parent and certainly myself as a parent, I think about that a lot when I, you know, when, when I'm doing my own parenting and, and I think back to my own childhood, I grew up with three brothers and, you know, th- that is certainly something that is important. So in addressing issues around representation, diversity and inclusion, there are so many, so many ways uh, that we need to work on it and no one solution or no one point of attrition is going to be enough. And at Google, you know, they've funded programs like the, the Gina Davis Institute, um, where they, first of all, worked on actually mapping out data within within uh, TV shows, within Hollywood, within media, and that helped to actually write characters into TV shows to to offer examples um, and 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 role models to children and and also to uh, to, to to adults. And that was something that has worked well and, and stemmed more broadly and in me- the medical field in particular. And so, you know, there's definitely the the element of media, which is quite important. Um, there is the element of uh, ch- child, early childhood education. This is something I'm also very passionate about personally, first and foremost, as a parent, um, but also um, as, uh, you know, as, as someone who's 
focused on what the next generation will look like. And so there's there's much to be done now, but we need to start earlier on. So I actually wrote a, a children's book, which uh, will be coming out soon, um, that is specifically about a, um, a, a young girl who um, starts a company and goes through uh, the process of, of fundraising and what that's like, uh, you know, um, and, and uh, specifically as a young woman of color. So uh, there, you know, there are many ways to address this. I do think the last few years have certainly been a reckoning for the world and everything from, you know, me too, to, um, you know, to the venture capital industry. And there's been quite a bit of progress. And I know this because I, I wanted to, you know, enter VC before any of that happened. And I felt a market difference myself, but there has not been nearly enough progress. And unfortunately, uh, the pandemic uh, in many cases has exacerbated existing inequities and biases, um, particularly for women and particularly for women of color, uh, not just in terms of, you know, the number of you know, the, the the mortality rate for COVID itself, but actually for, you know, the, the folks who are dropping out of the workforce. It is devastating. And there's much work to be done there. And if we can't even keep women in the workforce, imagine how much work there is to be done uh, on, on the fundraising side. And so this is something that continues to be a huge problem. I'm very, very happy to say that there are incredible organizations like All Rays, like Him For Her, um, and, and a number of others out there, women in VC, et cetera, that are really focused on this, um, that have raised money and have institutionalized and, have, and are being incredibly thoughtful, starting with research and all the way through kind of programmatic activity. So I think that I, I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic and I'm involved in that, um, that these things are, are long-term problems and require long-term solutions. Definitely. And when does this, when does this book come out? Well, what, what can, when could we expect this to hit the shelves? Well, I'm very curious about that. TBD, TBD. It's still, uh, it, it's, it's still a work in progress. I mean, the book is done. We're just we're going through the process of getting it published. So I'll stay tuned for that. Um, but I'll, I'm very excited, John. Hopefully you can I'll definitely be a buyer. I'll definitely yes, be a buyer. Hopefully you can read, read it, it my, by the time your new baby's born. <laughs> my, oldest, my oldest is a girl too. So obviously looking to surround her with positive, uh, you know, female role models. And, and as she grows up, I would love to, uh, to introduce her to you. Absolutely. And she can hang out with my daughter who's around the same age. So for Love sure. It. Love it. We're going to have a playpen at Salt, New York. It's like <laughs> you know, babysitting area. So. Nice. Nice. So, uh, so I think this, this could serve as a, as a great segue to sort of the, the second chapter of the interview. And, and here, Dina, we're really going to uh, go into some kind of broad existential topics. Love, love, love your take. Uh, so I think the the first one is uh, not quite a softball, but what do you think the world will look like in 2050, a generation from now? I mean, you could take this in any which way direct or direction you so please, but give us a sense as you close your eyes, what do you see for the world in 2050, for better or worse? <laughs> I don't know if that's a softball. That's a hard one. <laughs> if you ask somebody that in 2019 before the <laughs> pandemic, um, yeah. you know, I... I've been really interested um, just intellectually, but also from an investment perspective in uh, Gen Z. Um, and um, I just find the the sort of the preferences, the behaviors, the um, the epistemic choices that they're making very markedly different from the generation before. And, and so that's kind of what I think about when I think about the, the sort of the change makers of, uh, you know, who will be, uh, you know, shaping the next generation, uh, whether it's their uh, 
focus on, you know, environment, the environment and climate change, their inherent um, comfort with, with stigmatized topics like, you know, mental health and seeking therapy, um, whether it's a sort of digitally native experience that, you know, is, it, it is different, you know, as a millennial myself, you know, yes, I was on AOL as a child um, and, you know, all of that, but this is, this is different now. This is, this is not just about communication. Um, it's about creation and it's about, um, and it's about uh, the next wave of invention. So I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic and excited. Um, you kind of have to be as a VC. That's one of the things I love about this job. You are, you are, you know, these are long-term investments, right? I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, buying stocks, right? I'm, uh, and I'm taking, uh, uh, you know, making investments in, in, in the future here. I see um, an incredible opportunity on the science side. I think that what we've seen over the last year is remarkable. It is incredible. I, I have to like, you know, when, when I got my, my, uh, my vaccine, I, I, like many, I cried, not just on a personal level at like, you know, we're getting through this, but holy shit, this is such an amazing achievement for humanity. The, the, the speed at which we were able to uncover it, the incredible uh, innovation behind it, the collaboration that it took. Yeah, there were some snafus along the way, but if that's what we can do now, you know, I'm pretty optimistic about what 2050 will look like. Yeah. I mean, I, on this point here, I mean, it, it, the fact that it took us 10 months really from the embryonic phases and the breakout in Wuhan to, uh, uh, two, not, not just one, two really uh, compelling and efficacious vaccines in, in Pfizer and Moderna and maybe a handful of others to go to be seen on the, uh, the J&J side. Yeah. That societal immune system was quite compelling. Like, I mean, it, it, it was, it was bad. Don't get me wrong, but I, I would, I would say props to us. I mean, the typical time horizon for bringing a drug to market 10 years, I mean, 10, we'll take, we'll take 10 months. And I think it's a, mm-hmm. a good experiment for, for things to come. Uh, how do you think, I mean, with, with COVID and your, your investments in, in, in healthcare and such, how, how has COVID really materially impacted the healthcare system in your view, and has has COVID and the the aftermath or the continued aftermath impacted your your investment thesis uh, in that category in any way? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, you know, we were we have been investing in healthcare certainly. Lux has prior to my even joining for 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 decades, and I have been working on it prior to COVID. But this is this is such a cliche. I hate to even say it out loud, but it truly was, you know, it was a watershed moment for digital health. And, uh, and I can kind of elaborate a bit specifically on how and why, you know, a lot of my secret sauce or, or my sort of superpower, as I mentioned, is around the, the people. And so I've been having conversations for the last decade and developed relationships with the decision makers uh, at the C-suite of some of these top insurance companies, so payers, health systems, so providers, um, and, and research facilities. And I know I've worked on it. I tried. Uh, I know how difficult it is to, uh, to, 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 to make change, especially when it comes to these deep rooted kind of challenges around uh, incentives and provider behavior and so on. It is not easy. So the, the last year forced change. It, it impelled regulatory change that might've taken decades. It impelled behavior change that might've never happened. It, catalyzed um, 
these technologies from niche nice to haves into permanence, into essentials. And if you look at the last couple of months, the, the sort of investor calls of some of the largest payers and, and you know, the Aetnas and the Anthems of the world and the Humanas of the world, as well as even retail, um, CVS and Walmart and so on, everyone's talking about digital transformation. Everybody's looking for these solutions. And they realized, perhaps not, not at their own you know, choice, um, that uh, it works. And certainly there's still a place for, of course, for you know, in-person care. But healthcare moving into the home is here to stay. And that is across the board, not just in terms of care delivery, but another you know, element that's quite important to us um, and to me personally is also on the research side and, and the decentralization of clinical trials, the virtualization of clinical trials, the incorporation of digital biomarkers and so on is not only important just to accelerate research and enable us to have you know, solutions like these vaccines quite quickly, but also to, um, to, to be more inclusive in our research, which has been a systemic problem for a long time. Women have been drastically under-researched, resulting in issues like dosage, um, you know, mis mis dosage recommendations, and and ultimately sometimes deaths as well. And it's even uh, worse in general for um, uh, looking at racial considerations. So a large part of that has been just how difficult it is and consuming it is to be a part of clinical research. So that's one thing that's exciting. And we're in companies like Science Thirty Seven and Electra Labs uh, and H One, which are really at the forefront of en enabling that um, virtualization and decentralization using technology. Yeah, and and on the on the government side of the house, the regulatory side of the house, uh, when we're sort of crafting legislation and, and so on and so forth, if you were in if you were in that position, if you kind of went went back to your your government days, what pieces of legislation would you be drafting to enable and empower uh, the entrepreneurs, whether it be on the healthcare side or even on the therapeutic side, on the FDA side of the house? Yeah. But, um that there, there would be a lot of suggestions that I would have, but you know, certainly uh, it, it's not as easy, of course, as writing legislation, as you know, because there are really entrenched interests at play here that can make it difficult, whether you're thinking about, you know, cross-border licensing for physicians or, um, you know, uh, what it takes to, to, um, to, to regulate a, a new device. And regulation is there for a reason. Regulation is important. Uh, we need that. We need, uh, you know, checks and balances and safety measures in place. But we also need to um, facilitate and fund innovation. And I think, you know, what, what we've seen uh, certainly uh, in the last few months coming out of um, uh, the administration has been a re renewed focus and, and interest on that. And I think that's promising. Um, but but there's a lot at play there. So let's see. I mean, it remains to be seen how much of the regulatory changes that um, you know, whether it's around HIPAA compliance or uh, or so on, how much how much of that is here to stay? But again, I'm optimistic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of interesting regulatory considerations for these truly game changing, paradigm shifting technologies in the life science sector. I mean, one uh, of course is gene editing and the use of use of CRISPR, particularly if you're you're going after the germline of a, of a given species. I'm curious when it comes to genetic modification of humans. You know, if we had the ability to to, to really do that in, in a pinpoint, precise way, and we understood the the ramifications, should we should we take that take that leap? I'm curious what your your take is there. Yeah, you know, um, 
going back again to my childhood, uh, you know, my, my grandfather in Iraq was a pediatrician and worked with the World Health Organization. And he was actually involved in the early days of the, of the Human Genome Project. And, I, and as I think about, and he passed away um, over 10 years ago, but as I think about the advances in the last decade, I, I always think back to what, I, what would he think and could he even have conceived of just how much uh, opportunity there is now with these, um, with, you know, the, the cost reduction on sequencing the human genome and, and, and our ability to uncover variants and, uh, and hopefully from there discover therapeutic treatments. You know, Lux is, uh, is in a company called Variant, which is doing just that. Um, we are... Uh, we'll be make, making some additional announcements soon, um, but I am long on polygenetic testing. I am long on, um, you know, pharmacogenetics. I think there's just incredible opportunity toward the personalization of medicine, um, which has been a long time coming. And um, and these advances on the genetic science side are are um, really groundbreaking. And so we're just at the at the cusp of that innovation. And and one thing we think about, which is kind of a segue to that, is Wow, I mean, lifespan is also extending. About every year that goes by, we gain about a fourth of a year in life expectancy. That's been the case since the Industrial Revolution. And kind of do some extrapolation over the next few generations. It is foreseeable that humans will be living uh, well over 100, perhaps even to 150 years of age. And that has tremendous ramifications on the healthcare system, on the insurance system, as well as you know, all kinds of, of, of others and, and related to the workforce. Here's as you, as you think about that or yourself, but also in the context of Lux, how is that increased lifespan uh, affecting the way in which you're thinking about these different ramifications in, in health and life science? Yeah, there, there is so much there. I mean, one of the big things that I'm, uh, and, and Lux is really thinking a lot about is uh, CNS and sort of, you know, cognitive science um, and, you know, that is one area where there's still tremendous, um, just so much that we don't know, um, and, and so much opportunity there. And, and, um, and I've had family members, um, who I've seen go through, um, you know, Parkinson's and, and dementia and so on. And so it, it is also very personal to me. So that's one area where, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about potential for um, transformative innovation. Um, and then in general, you know, on a more short-term uh, level, also just the idea of aging in place. And what we saw through, uh, again, through the last year and um, a lot of what we saw uh, revealing issues with, you know, nursing homes and so on. But, uh, you know, as we have an increasingly digitally savvy uh, elderly population and as in particular, going back again to this issue, uh, uh, question around equity and, and gender, women finding themselves in this sort of sandwich generation mm-hmm. where we are caretaking for our parents and also for our children what are the types of technologies around care coordination um, and so on that can help to um, to facilitate that and enable that? Again, I think there's it's still quite analog in many ways and a big challenge for a lot of people. I'm sure everyone listening here has someone they know, if not themselves personally, that's going through that. So I think that there's quite um, quite an opportunity there, and and luckily a lot of venture dollars going to toward those types of companies. Tina, I have a question for you. So. You do a lot of investing. You've done a lot in your life to change the world, but you also work, you know, at a venture capital firm where the expectations from your LPs, I assume, are that you drive returns. So when yep. you're looking at investing in life sciences companies or deep tech companies, how do you balance sort of the sales, marketing, and commercialization part 
of the thesis against, wow, they're doing really interesting things. I'm not that concerned about the monetization piece at the moment. Yeah. You know, it, it goes back to sort of what I was uh, sharing in terms of um, graduating from undergrad and thinking about this sort of doing well or doing good and, and the evolution of, of my own perspective over time. Part of our investment thesis is that we are investing in entrepreneurs who are taking on massive problems. And those massive problems are therefore also massive opportunities on the business side. Uh, but they are also opportunities to improve human health and to, uh, you know, in the case of Shiro, for example, you know, contribute to uh, uh, reducing greenhouse gases, et cetera. So we are not an impact, you know, VC. We ultimately are stewards of capital for our LPs, who, by the way, also represent some of the most effective philanthropic institutions and endowments that are out there, which is another element of the impact uh, to venture that is not often uh, talked about, but it, it's something that is is real. And I feel very good about that when I know that not only are we creating value for, uh, you know, for the firm and for these companies and for these individuals and creating livelihoods and, you know, stimulating for further innovation down the road by enabling ecosystems and so on, but we are also returning capital to RLPs who are, um, you know, who, who are educational institutions and endowments and, and charities and so on. So that's that's another piece of it. Um, in terms of your question on monetization, the, you know, that is something that um, is a risk, an informed risk that you, you take when you're an early stage, you know, a science investor. Um, but it's not a bet. It is um, it, it is a calculated um, decision that is made based on a, a deep understanding. We're very thesis driven here, so a deep understanding of what it takes to get to to, you know, to get to monetization, what the market looks like, you know, deep relationships with the customers, if you will, down the road, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, it's, it's certainly, it's never, you know, foolproof, but we, we, we are very calculated in how we make those decisions. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more question before we let you go, Dina. It's about uh, super intelligent AI. So you talked about how Shiru is an example, and I'm sure uh, plenty of your other investments incorporate AI uh, uses AI to discover new plant proteins and things of that nature. Do you think we'll ever develop super intelligent AI or true AI uh, that's able to learn like a human learns? How far away might that be? And what are the implications of that for the way we think about society and our workforce? Yeah, um, I mean, it depends how you define that, because some might argue we already have that. But, you know, there's obviously a massive problem, which has been, um, you know, which has come to light in particular with uh, some large um, companies with pretty, pretty serious news events in the last few months around uh, a, you know, AI and ethics and AI and bias. So that isn't that is another uh you know, interesting uh, example where this sort of intersection of technology and 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 um, you know artificial intelligence, computer science, and humanities needs to come to play. So, you know, one of the um, I think it was two years ago now, Stanford launched the Center for Humane Artificial Intelligence, which I am a huge fan of, um, and I love the intersectionality they they bring to the sort of the the innovation there. Uh, if you look at companies like the one I mentioned, Variant, you know, which is ultimately focused on, on genetics and science, one of their first hires uh, was an ethicist. Um, and so having that really deep in the DNA, no pun, no pun intended, of these companies is, is, is quite important. So, 
you know, NLP to some extent, uh, or, or, you know, is, is already almost approaching that level. It's kind of incredible what, you know, the, uh, how good the AI is in a number of cases out there, but, um, there will need to be, um, checks and balances, particularly around bias. Well, Dina, thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. It, it uh, is very encouraging to hear people like you with such a diverse background, uh, thinking about things like ethics in addition to investing in innovation. Um, so we're very excited you're on the forefront of all these breakthroughs and look forward to doing hopefully more with you uh, with the SALT Fund and, and other things that we're working on. And like I said, we'd love to have you at the SALT Conference in September. And uh, if, if you need a babysitter, we can we can collude on that. Um, but thank <laughs> you so much for coming. You might regret making that offer, but maybe I'll take you up on it. <laughs> oh, there's, there's nothing I haven't seen. <laughs> Thanks Dina. for having me. <laughs> Great to see you, Dina. And thank you, AJ, uh, for joining us again uh, here on SALT Talks. And thank you, everybody, for joining us uh, for this conversation today with Dina Shakir from Lux Capital, uh, one of the just most fantastic uh, venture capital firms, we think, out there in the marketplace today, uh, solving big problems in a way that's also uh, benefiting the world. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, you can access them on our website. It's salt.org backslash talk and also on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active. At Salt Conference is our handle, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. If you have uh, people that are interested in how venture capital works and a lot of the, the innovations that they are helping to invest in, uh, please share this Salt Talk with them. But on behalf of AJ and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon. <laughs>